It's the last Sunday of 1948, and these are the final moments of tonight's episode of the Jack Benny program, including an exchange between Benny and his valet, Rochester, played by Eddie Anderson. Rochester, fix everything up nice, and I'll be home in a few minutes. Okay. Uh, uh, goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, say, boss. Now what? I forgot to tell you. Uh, there was quite a bit of excitement today. An airplane flew over Hollywood and started skywriting. Skywriting? What did it say? Next week, Jack Benny's program moves to... Moves to where? Moves to where? I don't know. NBC's anti-aircraft. Shot him down. <laughs> Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, next week we'll be with you again at the same time with the same cast on another network. However, I want to take this opportunity of thanking everyone connected with NBC for a very pleasant association. Jack Benny had been a significant part of NBC for more than 15 years, and that night he was saying goodbye. The following week, the first Sunday of 1949, the Jack Benny program, one of America's most popular radio shows, would move from NBC to CBS. Now, this is going to be hard to believe in light of today's political climate, but in those days, the more money you made, the more taxes you paid. And Benny's tax bracket could get as high as 80%. So, when new capital gains laws were introduced that would lower his taxes, Benny wanted to restructure how his show was produced in order to take advantage of them. NBC had hesitated in allowing him to do so, but CBS said it was okay with them, and Benny made the move to CBS, along with several other popular radio stars who wanted to do the same thing. Bing Crosby, Groucho Marx, Amos and Andy, and ventriloquist Edgar Bergen. Despite a massive promotional campaign, there was some concern that Benny's huge audience wouldn't follow him to another spot on the radio dial. But they did. Benny's show was just as popular on CBS as it was on NBC. And having a comic of Benny's stature helped CBS gain prestige and ratings. He would stay with CBS for the next 15 years on radio and TV, helping it gain its reputation as the Tiffany Network. It's a pretty good bet that one of the people listening to Benny on that Sunday night was a senior at the University of Nebraska named Johnny Carson. Just a few months later, as his senior thesis, Carson would tape record a presentation called How to Write Comedy for Radio and use several examples from Benny's show. Johnny Carson idolized Jack Benny, and within a few years, Benny would actually become one of Carson's biggest boosters. They formed a kind of mutual admiration society that would last until Benny's death in 1974. Jack Benny was one of America's dominant comedy voices during the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And by utilizing tricks he'd learned from Benny, Johnny Carson, as host of The Tonight Show for 30 years, would in turn become one of America's dominant comedy voices during the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. I'm starting to think that maybe we should do a potluck thing. Potluck, potluck. The potluck is going really great. A potluck. Seriously. Seriously. This is the Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck.
Welcome to The Potluck. I'm David Inman. Neither Johnny Carson nor Jack Benny set out to be comedians. Jack Benny, born Benny Kubelski, wanted to be a violinist. He started taking lessons when he was six years old. He played in local dance bands and vaudeville houses, and as a result, his studies suffered. He never graduated from high school. Then came a stint in the Navy during World War I, where Benny played the violin for his shipmates. They booed, and he responded with a few wisecracks and an idea for a new direction in his career. Johnny Carson was born in Corning, Iowa, and when he was a kid, his family moved somewhere much more exciting, Norfolk, Nebraska. When Carson was 12, he bought a mail-order magic kit. After a lot of practice, and with the help of his mother, who sewed him a black silk shirt with a white rabbit on the back, he started performing at local events, Kiwanis Club meetings and the like, as the Great Carsoni for $3 a show. On Sunday nights, he would listen to the Jack Benny program, and the next day on the school playground, he would reenact the show. He would say later that it was as much a way to deal with his shyness as anything. Like Benny, Carson was also in the Navy, but in his case it was during the final days of World War II. Carson continued doing magic in the service and actually added a ventriloquist dummy to his act. After the war, Carson enrolled in the University of Nebraska to study journalism and then switched his major to radio and speech with a minor in physics. Despite the change in his major, Carson was still interested in writing, specifically writing comedy shows for radio, which was the subject of his tape-recorded senior thesis. Few people probably realize the preparation that goes into Bob Hope's flip treatment of jokes, Fred Allen's dry and multisyllabic humor, the bungled attempts of speech of Archie of Duffy's Tavern, or the situations that Jack Benny finds himself. The comedy gag writer is truly a forgotten soul. But if you don't mind being forgotten, have a terrific sense of humor, and what's more important, can put it down on paper, the top comedians are waiting right now with check in hand. To prove his point, Carson used examples from all the leading radio comedy shows of the day. Duffy's Tavern, Fibber McGee and Molly, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, and shows hosted by comedians like Bob Hope and Fred Allen. But most of the clips he chose came from, well, take a guess. One of the favorite devices of writers is the running gag, or in other words, the reappearance of one comedy bit throughout the show. The running gag can either be dialogue or sound effect, or both combined. It can be repeated by the same character or by different persons on the program. Usually, the other members of the cast use it with a new twist or a new situation. Now, let's drop in on the Jack Benny Show, one of the big consumers of the running gag. The Benny Show is not built on gags. The writers set to work on a script with one idea in mind. Their philosophy is, let's have a good time. Forget the jokes. Jack and his gang may be in Palm Springs one week, at a birthday party the next, or spending the day at the races. The writers will not use a line, no matter how funny, if it doesn't fit the character. 
Here's how one Benny show started. Jack is trying to get to Santa Anita racetrack. Notice the use of the running gag with dialogue and with that wonderful prop, Jack's Maxwell. Ladies and gentlemen, once every year, Jack Bennett decides to tempt fate by going out to Santa Anita for the races. Yesterday was that day. So let's go back and pick up Jack and Rochester in the car. Gee, Rochester, I can't wait to get to the racetrack. Me too, boss. It's a good idea starting early. We miss all the heavy traffic. Uh-huh. You know, Roger, it's such a beautiful day. Let's put the top down. The top is down. <laughs> then why is it so dark? We ain't out of the garage yet. <laughs> oh, 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 well, let's hurry. Don't, uh, don't drive too fast, Rochester. I won't, boss. Yeah, da dee da down, da dee da down, da down, da dee da down. Say, Rochester, there's a house that looks just like mine. It is yours. We ain't out of the driveway yet. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Well, let's get going. <laughs> Ah, this is a life. Top down, beautiful day, balmy weather, sunshine. It sure is swell. It sure is. You know, Rochester, sunshine is the... Uh-oh. I think it's going to rain. I don't think so, boss. Then why did it get so dark? The car slipped into reverse. We're back in the garage again. <laughs> oh, for heaven's sake, Rochester, we'll never get to Santa Anita. Now, come on, we've got to pick up Miss Livingston. In that running gag, the writers took advantage of one of radio's most precious belongings, the recognition device. Fibber McGee's closet, Red Skelton's expression, I do it, and Jack Benny's Maxwell are so established in the listener's mind that they can be used to great advantage for pointing up a spot, ending one, or for other purposes. They're always surefire material if used with discretion. They can become hackneyed if overdone. During seven years, the expression, taint funny, McGee, hasn't lost its potency. That, again, is the recognition device. For another short look at the running gag, listen to this piece of business on the same Benny program. Jack and Mary are at the racetrack now. Say, Mary, let's go out and get a hot dog. But, Jack, we're in the clubhouse. Let's have lunch here. Well... <laughs> A waiter. Waiter. Yeah. <laughs> mm, uh, we'd, uh... We'd like to get something to eat. Uh, what would you suggest? A bib. You look like the sloppy type. <laughs> Never mind that. Now, what, uh, what can we get in a hurry? Well, we have roast pork, corned beef, leg of lamb, sirloin chips, and bacon and eggs. Bacon and eggs sound good. Are the eggs fresh? Ooh, lovely. <laughs> oh, well, I'll have that. Uh, Mary, uh, how, uh, how about you, Mary? Would you like bacon and eggs? Ooh, what I? <laughs> Mary, 
Uh, just bring us our orders, waiter, uh, as quickly as you can. Uh, yes, sir, and I'll seat you at that table over there. That's number one. A little later in the show, guest star Ronald Coleman adds to the running gag. Hello, Benita. Hello, Mary. Hello, Jack. I'm Ronnie. Look who's here. Well, hello, Ronnie. Aren't you surprised at meeting me here? Oh, am I? <laughs> By the time Carson recorded his thesis, Benny was a broadcasting legend and one of the most popular comics in the country. In the early 1930s, working with writer Harry Kahn, Benny basically created what we now know as the traditional situation comedy format. The two men would split up soon afterward. Kahn thought that his genius was wasted on Benny and that he could make a superstar out of another radio comic named Joe Penner. But Penner faded quickly, while Benny's Sunday night show would go on to become one of the most popular on radio, running until 1955. The Jack Benny program was actually almost a postmodern sitcom. It was a show about a stingy comic named Jack Benny, who had his own radio show. The show would often take place backstage before the show ostensibly went on the air, and would often end with the beginning of what was supposed to be that night's episode. If you've never heard Benny's radio shows and remember him only from his TV work, you might be wondering what all the fuss is about, and I wouldn't blame you. Benny's TV work could often be predictable, while his radio work, especially during the 1930s and the first half of the 1940s, was filled with bizarre humor and running jokes. Over a period of years, Benny and his writers created the Benny persona, a comic who was vain, insecure, petty, and, above all, cheap. Jokes were created to fit this character, and one of the most famous is from 1948. Hey, Bud. Bud. Huh? Got a match? Match? Yes, I have one right here. Don't make a move. This is a stick-up. What? You heard me. Mister, mister, put down that gun. Shut up. Now, come on. Your money or your life? <laughs> Look, bud. I said your money or your life. I'm thinking it over. For over 20 years, Sunday nights meant Jack Benny. To most Americans, it was almost a religious ritual to check in with Benny, sidekick Mary Livingston, who was Benny's wife in real life, announcer Don Wilson, singer Dennis Day, comic Eddie Anderson as Rochester, and bandleader Phil Harris. Everyone had their place. Livingston needled Benny. Day sang a song in his Irish tenor and needled Benny. Anderson played a, quote, subservient, unquote, role and needled Benny. Harris told jokes about his drinking or his band's lack of talent and needled Benny. And Wilson did commercials and needled Benny. That was the key to Benny's success. As talented a comic as he was, Benny was often the straight man on his own show. He was ridiculed as a ham, a miser, an egotist, a pedant, and a lousy violin player, and he cried about it all the way to the bank. His hold on that Sunday night time slot was so strong 
that when General Foods ended its sponsorship of Benny's show in the early 1940s because of product shortages caused by World War II, they gave Benny the slot to work with any other sponsor he chose. Years in vaudeville and on the radio had made Benny a master of comic timing. He never rushed a joke, and if someone working opposite him went too fast or stepped on the setup, Benny instinctively knew how to save the situation by taking an extra beat or casually asking the person to repeat the line. Benny became known in the business as much for the way he paused as for what he said. Johnny Carson would later say that one of his goals as a comic was to utilize a pause as effectively as Jack Benny. Benny would have been the first to admit that he wasn't a great ad-libber, but his writers gave him good material and he was an expert editor. And unlike some radio comics who used and discarded writers like Kleenex, Benny hired the best writers in the business, gave them long-term contracts, and paid them well. The same with his supporting cast, one of the tightest ensembles in radio. A lot of people contributed to the success of the Jack Benny program, but only one man was the overseer who ensured consistent quality, and that was Jack Benny. Here's a great example of how Benny's cast worked so well together. This is a clip from 1942 with Humphrey Bogart as guest star. Now, two things you need to know up front. In this episode, band leader Phil Harris has been taking French lessons, and Jack is having trouble with the show's sound effects man, who wants to be a comedian. He's here. Who? Who's here? Oh, well, hello, Humphrey. Hello, Jack. Glad to see you. Ladies and gentlemen, that star of Warner Brothers Pictures, Mr. Humphrey Bogart. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Humphrey, it's darn nice of you to come over here tonight and help us solve our little murder mystery. I'm glad to do it, Jack. I heard you play last week, and I figured somebody should do something about it. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> Say, Humphrey, we'll start casting in a minute, but uh, first I want you to meet the members of my gang. Uh, this great big fellow here is Don Wilson. It's a pleasure, Don. Put her there, Humphrey. Out! <laughs> Watch out, Don. He's as strong as a three-cent cigar. You ought to know. Quiet. <laughs> and, Humphrey, this is Mary Livingston, our little comedian. Uh, say something funny for Mr. Bogart, Mary. Oh, shut up. <laughs> well, shake hands with him anyway. Okay. Glad to know you, Miss Livingston. Put her there. Ouch! <laughs> Mary. And this is Dennis Day, our young tenor, and Phil Harris, our musical genius. Hiya, fellas. Bonsoir. Come out, Pally Boo, Humphrey. <laughs> Humphrey? Is that French, Humphrey? <laughs> Phil. Phil, uh, stop, stop showing off, you know. You know, Mr. Bogart, I took my girl to see you in all through the night, and did you make a hit with her? Did you make a hit? Dennis. Ah, oh, she kind of liked me, eh, kid? Well, she talks out of the side of her mouth now, if that means anything. <laughs> well, that's real hero worship. I guess we can get started with the casting, Humphrey. Say, where's Rochester? I'd like to see him. 
Oh, he won't be with us tonight, Humphrey. He has a cold. He'll be all right next week, though. He's got the strongest cough medicine. Hmm? Well, <laughs> uh, let's get started. Uh, you've met everybody. What about me? Am I an old shoe or something? <laughs> Believe me, Virgil, he's not interested in meeting you. But if it'll make you happy, all right. Humphrey, this is Virgil Reimer, our great sound man. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Reimer. I've admired your work on this program for a long time. You see? <laughs> okay, okay. Now let's get on with our sketch. Uh... This was the show that Johnny Carson grew up listening to. And while he was hosting a roast for Jack Benny in 1970, Carson talked about his comic idol. But the vice president has joined us briefly, and we're delighted that he could be with us for even a short time tonight in his tribute to Mr. Jack Benny. You'll have to forgive me when I talk about Jack Benny, because I can say it in front of this group tonight and to the television audience watching that unabashedly I can say that the man is my idol. That's true. When I was in high school, I never missed... <laughs> I never missed now, Jack why Benny. why was that funny? <laughs> When you were in high school, there were no high schools. <laughs> but I used to listen to Jack every single week. And as a matter of fact, after high school, I went into the Navy. And during the three years in the Navy, I became so impressed with Jack that I started to mimic him. I did his gestures. I still have a little bit of my style. I would do his timing. I would do his looks, his inflections. I even started to walk like Jack for a while. Until one night I was picked up by a Marine. <laughs> By the time he was attending the University of Nebraska, Carson was still doing his magic act, but his price had risen from three bucks a show to 25. His first job out of school was with WOW, a radio and television station in Omaha. Soon after that, Carson heard from a family friend in Los Angeles about an announcing job, and in 1951, Carson joined KNXT the CBS affiliate in Los Angeles, which is now known as KCBS. It didn't take long for a Sunday afternoon comedy show, Carson Seller, to start airing in L.A. KNXT, with its eyes wide open, cautiously presents Carson Seller! Carson Seller began developing a following, and Carson also started a morning show. Red Skelton was a fan. He made an appearance and ended up hiring Carson as a writer. Fast forward to the summer of 1954. Skelton is injured while rehearsing for his show, which goes live in an hour. Skelton himself told the story while presenting Carson with an award in 1987. The date of August the 18th, 1954 may not go down in history as an eventful day for the world. But for one skinny writer on my television show, it was very memorable. Johnny Carson became a hit as a result of a hit on my head. <laughs> I sustained while I was rehearsing a sketch. I walked into a brick wall, and it's usually good for a laugh. <laughs> but this was good for a concussion. <laughs> I was in my semi-conscious uh, state, which is uh, pretty hard to tell with me, you know. <laughs> I suggested that uh, I couldn't go on that evening. But there was a young writer on the show, uh, had a great sense of humor, could take my place. Now, if I had been completely conscious, I'd probably put him under contract for life. <laughs> but he went on, and uh, they called it an overnight sensation. 
which means you have to be in this business for 10 years before you can say that. See? Well, Carson has really come a long way from the cellar to the top of the world. And I admire this man. What I like about him most is that he's kind gentleman. He's uh, a loving father and a most giving husband, which he has proved on several occasions. As a result of substituting for Skelton, Carson got impressive and very vocal support from Jack Benny. In early 1955, TV Guide asked several established funny men to name a young comic they thought showed promise. Groucho Marx chose George Goebel. Steve Allen chose Dick Sean. Benny chose Carson. And his description of Carson's style could actually also apply to Benny's style. Johnny Carson, a bright young comic, gets his laughs from ideas and situations rather than rapid-fire jokes. This type of comedian, I feel, will outlive most of the others. Benny occupied a real position of power at CBS, and a few months later, at Benny's urging, the network gave Carson a weekly show. And by coincidence, Carson's first sponsor was one of Benny's best-known sponsors. Johnny Carson Show, starring Johnny Carson with Jill Corey. Brought to you by Jell-O, America's favorite gelatin dessert. And pre-cooked minute rice for perfect rice without cooking. The Johnny Carson Show received good reviews, but it lasted just one season. And soon after that, Carson was in New York hosting a game show called Who Do You Trust?, The show aired on weekday afternoons on ABC, right before American Bandstand, which at that time was a daily show. This meant that American teenagers would come home from school and often catch Carson's ad-libs and clowning with contestants while waiting for Dick Clark and his dancing teenagers. Carson also continued doing stand-up. Here he is on Steve Allen's show in 1960. And I'm having a little trouble with the schools lately. I got uh, our report cards the other day, the children. I have three boys. And I know when I was in school, probably like you, you got A, B, C, D, F. You know, you go back and you do the grade again. But nowadays that doesn't happen. The teacher writes her own little comments under things like uh, group therapy, social behavior, adaptability. Well, I got the card the other week. This is for the three kids. And uh, you never know what they mean. You think your kids are doing so swell, and then you check what they really mean. For example, here about Ricky, the teacher. He's my seven-year-old. The teacher says, Ricky shows unusual creative ability for his age. You know what that means? He can make a snake out of clay. (laughs) (laughs) The bites? No, here's here's another gem here under social behavior. Chris is keen-minded and displays a searching attitude with objects about him. Proud? He's been stealing from the classroom. Here's one about my youngest. He's in the first grade, Corey. Corey has an abundance of natural exuberance and is quick to make known his desires. Translation, he sometimes doesn't make it to the bathroom on time. That's what I get. I'm a proud parent. I'll tell you something else. During his time hosting the game show, Carson demonstrated one more lesson he'd learned from Jack Benny. Benny's announcer, Don Wilson, was also Benny's best audience. 
Listen to any of Benny's radio shows, and you'll hear Don Wilson chuckling in the background. Not too long into his run on Who Do You Trust, Ed McMahon became Johnny Carson's announcer. Like Don Wilson, McMahon had a contagious laugh. And like Don Wilson, he was a large and plump counterpart to the rail-thin Carson. So Carson kept him close. In early 1962, after five years as host, Jack Parr announced that he was leaving The Tonight Show, and the Poobahs at NBC thought they had just the guy to replace him, Bob Newhart. But Newhart said no. So did Jackie Gleason. So did Joey Bishop. And so did Johnny Carson at first. He confided to Ed McMahon that he didn't feel ready to jump from a 30-minute game show to a 105-minute talk show. In those days, The Tonight Show ran from 11.15 to 1 a.m. in some cities. But finally, Carson said yes, and he took Ed McMahon with it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. This is kind of an emotional thing for me because I've known about this show for a long time. And the newspapers and the magazines, and I've probably been interviewed 150 times in the last nine months since I've known about this. As I say, you work up to it. We come over here this afternoon. We meet the guests that are on the show. And you get kind of charged up. I don't mean to be maudlin about it. But I know that tonight a lot of people, a lot of my friends are watching all over the country. And I only have one feeling as I, I stand here knowing that so many people are watching I want my nan <laughs> Over the years, the opening of The Tonight Show evolved. Catchphrases were added, and the monologue developed a pace uh, that anybody watching could recognize over a period of decades. Here's an opening from 1974. The following program is brought to you in living color on NBC. tell you something. You might, you might as well forget it. I don't go all the way on the first joke. <laughs> Remember, this? who yelled, take it off up there? Oh, I thank you. Yeah. I thank you for that, that warm welcome. I wish I had something nice for you. But we'll do the monologue. Uh, you sound good tonight. Good, correct. Really? Last night we had a, uh, 
It was a nice crowd, but hostile. Not, not hostile, uh, mean. Uh, it was kind of a crowd last night we had that would take the annual cardiac patient's field trip to see The Exorcist. <laughs> to give you an idea. No, did you see that crowd last night? I've yes. never seen so many people in one sleeping bag in my life. <laughs> Game in here. Well, it was a little chilly here this morning in Los Angeles. Uh, I'll, um... I'll that's the only reason you it. come here, right. just to get that. Well, I said this morning, it was a little cold. I was up early. It was so cold, I saw a brass monkey thawing himself by sitting on my radiator. <laughs> you know what happens when it gets cold. <laughs> Thank you for being here, and I'll... <laughs> you know, it was gorgeous. During the 1960s and 70s, America experienced a cultural, social, and political upheaval that, in some ways, we're still litigating. Television was our dominant mode of communication, and one of the few constants on the tube during that tumultuous period was Johnny Carson. Now, make no mistake, Carson was a comic, not a news analyst and his humor was nowhere near as politically pointed as that of today's late-night hosts. But in his low-key way, Carson gently pushed boundaries regarding what people joked about on TV, utilizing the deadpan takes and comic pauses he'd learned from listening to Jack Benny. Carson was one of the first comics to suggest on TV that people did other things in bed besides sleeping. When Watergate began dominating the headlines, he had no choice but to begin making jokes about Spiro Agnew and Richard Nixon. When pop-singing oddity Tiny Tim married Miss Vicky in 1969, Carson hosted the ceremony on his show, breaking ratings records. And just as Benny had been to him, Carson became the idol of a new generation of stand-up comics comics to whom the holy grail, the ultimate goal, was to be asked to sit down opposite the host after doing your set. In 1990, it happened to Drew Carey. Time. Get Not just stand-up for people they don't remember, but being called over after a stand-up was rare, and you, you had that what-who-me moment. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. I mean, that's what everybody wants, is to do The Tonight Show for the first time with Johnny Carson and get called over to the couch. That was like a big seal of approval and I changed your life yeah that's why I'm on that's why I have everything that's why I have the house I live in the car I drive the jobs I have uh that's why I don't have to work anymore this is that one seven minutes on the Johnny Carson show it was like it was almost like hitting the lottery for 30 years rival networks threw everything they could think of at Carson late movies tv show reruns and talk shows hosted by Joey Bishop Joan Rivers Bill Dana Merv Griffin Dick Cavett, Alan Thicke, Chevy Chase, and even Carson's predecessor, Jack Parr. None of them stuck. Meanwhile, in 1970, Carson took another page from the Jack Benny playbook. He hired Benny's longtime producer-director, Freddie DeCordova, as the producer of The Tonight Show. DeCordova eventually became executive producer and stayed with Carson until the end of the show. For Jack Benny, the end came on December 28, 1974. He died at age 80 of cancer. One of his final TV appearances had been with Carson the year before. Does it bother you now when people ask you about your age? 
I mean, you did it on years as a uh, no, radio as a joke, I, of no, course. No, because most people know how old you are. And if they, I tell them, you know what I tell them? I said, guess anything you want over 39, and you've got it. And I'll go along with you. So they say 49, 69, 79. I say, it's all right with me. I don't care. Age, let me tell you something. Mark Twain once said, not to me. <laughs> I'm glad you. I'm glad you asked me. That. <laughs> so am I. Mark. He always knows what to ask me. Mark Twain once said that age is a matter of mind, and if you don't mind, it doesn't matter. Not a great line. Right. Remember that when you leave. Everybody. Johnny Carson's closest associates remember only a few times when he actually broke down with emotion. And all of them say that the day Benny died was one of them. That story was corroborated by Carson's then wife, Joanna, when 60 Minutes profiled Carson. I have seen John cry deeply only on two occasions in all the years I know him. And, that, and I've known him now nine years. Um, he finds that very difficult to do. Um, May I intrude to ask... When, or would you rather I did? I'll tell you just one time, because I don't think he'd mind me telling you that. When Jack Benny died, when we came home from the funeral, Johnny wept like a baby. And it was continuous. It was for several hours. I'd, I'd never seen him cry quite like that before. They were that close? Oh, I think as a young man growing up, the idol, the, the image, the everything, Jack was his thing. Um, and yes, they were close friends. Jack Benny's passing brought out everyone in Hollywood from Gregory Peck to George Burns to Bob Hope to Walter Matthau, who was about to make the film version of The Sunshine Boys with Benny. And yet Carson's name is absent from all news coverage of the funeral, and you don't see him on any of the TV footage. Clearly, he considered his grief too private to talk to the media about it. This seems like a good time to emphasize that Jack Benny and Johnny Carson, as much as they admired each other, weren't bosom buddies in the same way that, say, Jack Benny and George Burns were. They were very different people. From all accounts, Benny was a kind, friendly man who could readily park his ego, and he was as generous off-screen as he was stingy on-screen. Carson, on the other hand, was a cool and remote person, some said it was part of his Midwestern upbringing, and others said it was the result of a distant, domineering mother. Whatever the reason, Carson's coolness was interpreted as conceit by some people, or as vindictiveness by others. He certainly had his enemies, but he was idolized by the stand-up comics of the day, and he was an undeniably popular host of The Tonight Show. In 1962, when he began hosting, Carson's audience numbered about 7 million. By 1978, despite all the competition, his audience had doubled and showed no signs of falling off. This gave Carson leverage, and in 1979, he negotiated a new contract with NBC, wherein Carson Productions became the owner of The Tonight Show. Carson also bargained for the right to produce the show that would follow The Tonight Show, 
and Carson already knew who he wanted as the host of that show. Completely changes his personality and physical appearance when he goes on radio. David Letterman! In many ways, the relationship between Johnny Carson and David Letterman resembled the one between Benny and Carson. Letterman freely admitted that Carson was his comic idol, and Carson clearly felt that Letterman should have succeeded him as host of The Tonight Show. But there have been entire books written about all that. All we'll say is that in 1992, after 30 years, Carson was ready to go. And when the decision was made by NBC executives to give the show to Jay Leno, Carson didn't waste any time asking Letterman to come on his show and talk about it. Oh, why don't I just start off with a, uh, with, with a question here? Just, uh, just how pissed off are you? I've never asked that question in many years here. Johnny, let me, let me give you a little piece of advice. You, you keep using language like that, and you're going to find yourself out of a job. <laughs> the pomp and promotion around Carson's abdication was as all-encompassing as when Jack Benny switched networks back in 1949. Carson spent his final week behind his desk being deified and worshipped by everyone from Jerry Seinfeld to Bette Midler, who sang Here's That Rainy Day to Carson and won an Emmy Award for her appearance. Finally, it was Friday, May 21st, 1992, and Carson took the stage alone. After showing some clips from past shows, he spoke to all of America. So it has come to this. I uh, am one of the lucky people in the world. I found something I always wanted to do, and I have enjoyed every single minute of it. I want to thank the gentleman who shared this stage with me for 30 years, Mr. Ed McMahon, <laughs> Mr. Doc Severinsen, and you people watching, I can only tell you that it has been an honor and a privilege to come into your homes all these years and entertain you. And I hope when I find something that I want to do and I think you will like and come back that you'll be as gracious inviting me into your home as you have been. I bid you a very heartfelt good night. The next year, just as Jack Benny had done in 1949, David Letterman switched networks. True to his very private nature, Carson really retired. Okay, fine, he did a guest voice on The Simpsons. And when David Letterman brought his show to California in 1994, in the same way he would always show up for a Jack Benny TV special, Johnny Carson showed up for David Letterman. Carson got a standing ovation, and Letterman stepped away from his desk, motioning to Carson to take the cherished host's seat. Carson took a bow and left without saying a word. That was Carson's final appearance on television. A lifelong cigarette habit had given him emphysema, 
and Carson's final years were spent at his Malibu estate, a residence so big that Bob Newhart, upon seeing it for the first time, reportedly asked, Where's the gift shop? As large as it was, there was only one bedroom. Any guests at the Carson estate would stay in a house across the street. Johnny Carson died in 2005, and David Letterman paid tribute. Thank you. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Late Show. How about this for uh, bad news? Here in New York City, the basic cab fare, say you're from out of town, you want to take a cab someplace, the basic cab fare has gone up from $2 to $2.50. $2 to $2.50. Or as any cab driver in New York City can tell you, that's a 22 rupee increase. <laughs> Don't... Well, here was a sad story. I, I hated to hear about this. Uh, Paris Hilton, you know Paris Hilton? Uh, Paris Hilton has a, has a dog named uh, Tinkerbell. And uh, Tinkerbell was missing for a while. D don't worry, they found Tinkerbell. They, they found the dog. Tinkerbell was with the Taco Bell Chihuahua making a sex video. So has a happy ending. didn't really become the Tonight Show until Johnny Carson started to host it. And he created the template for that show. And everybody else who was doing a show, myself included, we're all kind of secretly doing Johnny's Tonight Show. And, and the reason we're all doing Johnny's Tonight Show is because you think, well, if I do Johnny's Tonight Show, maybe I'll be a little like Johnny and people will like me more. <laughs> but it sadly doesn't work that way. Uh -huh. It's just, if you're not Johnny, you're wasting your time. I mean, really, everything, the, the band, uh, the chairs, the desk, the announcer, it's, it's all because we just want to be uh, a little bit more like Johnny. And uh, I moved to Los Angeles from Indianapolis in 1975, and the reason I moved... Uh, is because of Johnny Carson and The Tonight Show. And I'm not the only one. I, I would guess that maybe three uh, generations of uh, comedians uh, moved to be where Johnny was. Because if, if you thought you were funny and you wanted to find out if you could hit major league pitching, you had to be on The Tonight Show. And that's exactly what I did. And, and all of my peers moved out there for the same reason. And uh, I was lucky enough to be on The Tonight Show uh, in 1978. And uh, from that, uh, I got a show that Paul and I used to do over at NBC, and from that we got this show. And it, truthfully, no stretch of the imagination, uh, I, I owe everything in my professional career, uh, whatever success we've attained, to Johnny Carson, because he was uh, nice enough to give me the opportunity and throughout my career was always very supportive. As a matter of fact, uh, every one of those jokes I did a few minutes ago were written for us over the last couple of months by Johnny Carson. And tremendous... Tremendous act of friendship. So, in his quiet, removed way, Johnny Carson was creating comedy until the end. For the comedian he supported, the way Jack Benny had supported him. 
The Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck is written, edited, produced, and narrated by me, David Inman. I also clean up afterwards. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to us on iTunes and rating us. Also, please visit the Incredible Inman Facebook page. And you can hear other podcast episodes at IncredibleInman.com. See you later.